Looking good. Thanks. You're going with the shaved look again? Yeah. I'm going gray, so I'm trying to hide it. Well, you could be like George Clooney. I'm sure you'll look very handsome with your gray hair. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All right. Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the 21st episode of the LLB Podcast. Uh, today, we continue to follow the crypto space and further explore the deep recesses of the FTX fallout. I think we're close to beating a dead horse, but I, I think we're not quite there yet. I think there's a few avenues that we can explore that haven't been really been covered yet. Um, previously, you know, we've had a crypto VC team, uh, Team Rocket Research, uh, on the podcast discussing you know the initial fallout. We also had a crypto researcher, Pat Ambrose, who recently launched his um, Substack modularresearch.f. And today we have Don Van, who also did a previous EOA episode back in Q1 this year, covering the crypto space in Vietnam. Uh, and Don, you know, has a background as being a crypto research analyst as well. Uh, reads a lot of white papers. Anytime I talk talk with Don, I learn something new. You know, one of the smartest guys I know has a background in trading. Um, also has done VC due diligence, has a day job in tech, big tech, a former Hiller for our Asian audience. That's someone who's worked on the Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Um, so I think it'll be quite interesting with your background because you've also worked in private equity and economics research. So I think the two angles that will be very interesting today would be, one is the political angle that everyone's talking about, how's regulation coming along, and then also then probably contagion. Uh, but before we move on, is there anything you'd like to add or clarify in that? Well, I guess that's a a good place to start, Alex. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, so I guess yeah, you want to talk about regulation and possible contagion. Um, yeah, it looks like there's going to be bigger calls for regulation. Um, you know, the news broke out during the midterm elections. And I think depending on the publication you're reading, um, it, it, it either got equal coverage and, and sometimes even greater coverage. And the fallout isn't completely clear at, yet. The contagion yeah. effect seems to be affecting other exchanges. Um, you know, they're going through withdrawals right now. You know, I think, I think Crypto.com and AAX have been some of the headlines that yeah. have, have been affected by this. So, yeah, the, the, and the calls for regulation, you know, crypto prides itself on being resistant to regulation. A lot of the early adopters are uh, super libertarian. And I, I would say I'm yeah. like... Definitely um, more libertarian than most. Um, but the thing that I would focus on, a lot of the attention has been on centralized exchanges like FTX. And it, it's not clear you know, what would be uh, a, a, good, a good regulation right now or, or how you'd even implement it. So uh, you know, the way that crypto is set up as, as decentralized platforms makes regulation uh, especially difficult. Yeah. So be before we go deep into these topics, let's, let's just get a little... Quick overview. I want to get your opinion. No, I, I just want to see what you think, because I think you've been consuming and following the news a lot with this. Um, why, why do you think people are so fascinated with this story specifically? Or, or is it maybe just a minority that's being very vocal? Because ultimately, you know, from the dot-com bust till now, there have been a lot of firms that blew up, you know, from MF Global to Enron. It, and the more I kind of talk about this and discuss this, it does seem to be that maybe it's just very specific niche for the people who care about it. But broadly speaking, you know, other than the people who maybe have lost actual life savings or anything, just it doesn't really materially change stuff. So I don't know. What, what do you think 
Like, what's your take on this and why people want to follow this? Well, you know? I, yeah, I, I think FTX is legitimately a big player. Uh, it's a top three exchange. Alameda, Alameda Research, you know, depending on how you describe it, either as a market maker, a VC fund, um, or a hedge fund, um, it was a big player in the crypto universe as well. Um, FTX had uh, a big brand. You know, um, FTX Stadium is where the Miami Heat play. You know, they ran Super Bowl commercials. And mm. Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, was becoming a major powerhouse in you know Washington politics. Who was who was giving money to uh, Democratic candidates and had even testified before Congress. You know, one of the things that you know one of the reasons I was following him so closely is that you know there there had been some glowing profiles of him in publications like the Financial Times in April yeah. and May, and he had claimed um, to Congress that. The system that he had set up for FTX um, had better measurements for leverage um, than the the stock exchanges, and and that's that's mm -hmm. kind of one area where I, I I'm kind of wondering like you know his reputation is so bad right now, but um, was the stuff yeah. that he was claiming before Congress is that stuff true or not? Yeah, because that's actually a separate issue, right? Be because what he did was fraudulent, which is taking user deposits and propping up the the hedge fund, but ultimately it's probably would be I mean it. It can be true that he was fraudulent, but also the exchange was robust. But I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any details on that specifically. Out of all the media you, you know, you consumed, is there anything else missing from that narrative besides the the fact that you think that? I guess that's something to also find out too. You know, what's just going to probably come up with the regulators probably looking into this closer that they'll investigate if that was robust. Uh, but is there anything else that you can think of that was maybe missing from the the narrative or could be fleshed out better? Anything that was missing from the narrative? Um, well, I, I guess for the, for the listeners that are like hearing this for the first time, um, and, and I think you've kind of done a good summary, um, the, I, the story, I guess, ends up not being that complicated. Um, and and it, it almost, it, yeah. it's sort of like the banking crises that we've had before. And if you're familiar with Glass-Steagall, the idea with these regulations is that you're separating uh, banking deposits for investment banking, sales and trading operations. And so SBF yeah. himself, you know, he was referred to as the JP Morgan of crypto because he was bailing out these uh, exchanges. Um, but he himself yeah. seemed to be the super bank where he was taking customer deposits through FTX and then using it um, for Alameda Research. It looks like he was giving $8 billion, um, in in loans um, to Alameda and and um, you know, they had some disastrous, uh, it, it looked like the, the, the crypto prices going down, um, were directional bets that went really badly. And then, I mean, when you were, when you first heard about SPF and you were following him earlier in the year, did anything stick out to you as a red flag or like, what was your interpretation back then? Well, so the, one of the, the guys that I follow the most closely is Matt Levine from, um, uh, Bloomberg. I think he's got a column called Money Talks. And. One of the best interviews, um, any of the interviews with Matt Levine and SBF, I think, are worth watching. Um, and, and I think it'll come across that um, SBF is a really smart guy. Um, there's a reason he was able to convince um, a lot of these VC investors to give him hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, one question that's been coming up is how did he get the initial capital to get this going? Um, the story that seems to be coming out now, and then you'll see this in like, you know, VC fund profo uh, profiles of him, is that he made his initial capital doing something called the kimchi trade, where, you know, there was a premium 
um, for Bitcoin in Korea because of the capital controls in Korea and that you could arbitrage Bitcoin by, say, um, um, you know, arbitraging the price difference of Bitcoin in the U.S. versus Korea. Um, mm. and, and then the question is, like, you know, how, how long did that trade go on and how profitable did it, how truly profitable was it? Um, yeah. And so, you know, he kind of made his name doing that. I see. So then let's, let's, let's go back to the contingent angle, like from your understanding, from an economics angle, um, what do you think would be the main mechanism that keeps spreading this? Is, is it that people don't trust a lot of these exchanges now, or is there actually, or is there actually data coming in that's showing that crypto.com or these other exchanges are holding also, you know, shitcoin or bad toxic assets on their balance sheet as well? Um, what, what do you think? Does, does this, does this stop with the, the current exchanges? Do you think this keeps spreading? And also like on our last episode, when we were talking back in March, uh, you had discussed that there's a possibility in the crypto space where there would be, it's big enough now where it could be systemic into fiat and wider economy as well. So what, what is your take on the, you know, the deeper aspects of how Contagen plays out? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're looking at the balance sheets, uh, and Matt Levine wrote about this in his last column. Um, the thing that caught people's eye and the thing that kind of, that I think was the spark or catalyst for this event was, um, people realizing that Alameda's main balance, uh, main holdings of the balance sheet were FTT, um, which are FTX's token. Um, and, uh, CZ, uh, the founder of Binance, uh, dumped them and that kind of caused a run on FTX. So, um, Alameda's, um, assets weren't super strong. And what's coming out now is it looks like. Um, one of FTX's main holdings is uh, a token called Serum. And so Serum was a decentralized exchange that S SPF um, you know, was trying to incubate. Um, and it looks like they marked uh, the valuation, the market cap for Serum. Um, they have the valuation of Serum at a, at a much higher number than the entire market cap of Serum. Um, so, so, you know, some of the contagion spread over um, uh, towards crypto.com and AAX. Um, and, and so now there's a, a bigger movement for something called proof of reserve. And so the idea here is if you're an exchange, you, you need to be completely transparent about what your assets are um, and if there's a conflict of interest. Because um, I, think, I, I think everyone that was following SBF knew that he was in charge of Alameda Research Both, yeah. and SDX. But like, um, you know, there, there was questions of, is this truly an arm's length relationship? And it looks like it, it wasn't. Okay. So then like, ultimately, like from what I understand though, it's, I think you only have exposure to this as long as you were either putting money and holding it in the exchange, or if you're probably holding something like FTT or something like you said, serum. So right. broadly speaking, it, it seems that this should be pretty limited and this doesn't spread any further then. Yeah. So, you know, I, you're seeing some reports are saying like, oh, uh, crypto or Bitcoin specifically can drop down to eight eight thousand dollars, and and you know yeah. the there there has been some uh, Bitcoin price drops. I it's I think it's it's slightly above sixteen thousand last I checked, but you know it's not having it's not it's not collapsing fast enough. This is kind of the story. Yeah. Um. So the contagion seems to be limited there. Um. The contagion seems to be going towards other exchanges, but. Uh, you know, kind of what I'm interested in, and I haven't seen any data yet. Has there been greater interest in decentralized exchanges, DEXs? Um, and, you know, Kyber Network is a big one here in Vietnam. Um, and has there been more interest in cold wallets um, like Ledger and Trezor? Because, um, you know, if, if you're on Twitter right now, you're seeing a lot of Bitcoin maxis um, 
kind of saying, I told yeah. you so. This, this right. is the, the heyday. This is actually really yeah. good. Like, I think so. I think we should probably talk about that because I think what people don't realize, there's going to be a lot of conflation where they think a centralized exchange is the core tenant of, of like what stands for crypto blockchain technology, but it's not, right? So it's, it's actually the, the intersect between traditional finance and I guess you could say into DeFi or other blockchain technologies, but it's, it's just an on-ramp, off-ramp. So I think it's very important to kind of like say what you're saying is that, you know, is this kind of intersect world, which we could discuss if that's important or not. But on yeah. the deeper side of crypto, it's DeFi. And you don't even, in theory, need that. It, like you said, like what you're interested in is like, you know, does this kind of spur a movement on? And if that's the case, what is your take? Do you, do you like, how does the TradFi DeFi space probably evolve from here? You know, because it, it's, it either becomes, you know, set back for many years, regulation comes in and it slows it down and that might bifurcate, you know, the the DeFi guys, which like you said, so ultimately, actually, this is probably a positive event for crypto long run, but maybe sentiment wise, it's scaring a lot of the, you know, VCs in the space or investors who would usually be deploying because I think regulation is now a real risk. You know, if, if the regulars are looking at this and you're kind of in this gray spot of a CXCXX or a wallet even, um, you know, it's, it's, something you would pause, I guess, until it becomes more clear. So what, what do you think, just how this plays out? Yeah, so the, the contagion seems to be going after mostly centralized exchanges. Centralized exchanges also seem to be the ones that are most likely to get regulated and are most open to regulation. Um, depending on how that, that goes out, you know, maybe we'll see something like FDC, FDIC insurance, um, where you'll insure deposits. There'll be like, know your customer KYC regulations, and, and you'll probably have a more limited supply of the kind of crypto that you can buy um, on these centralized exchanges. Um, you know, one of the other big um, regulatory things I'm watching right now would be um, kind of the outlaw currencies like Tornado Cash and Monero. Um, you know, this is the other kind of frontier of crypto and, and uh, regulations. And so, um, you know, you, for- Can you explain those? Yeah, sure. So, so Axie Infinity, this really big GameFi startup out of Vietnam, um, they got hacked um, earlier. Uh, their bridge got hacked for $600 million by the U.S. Treasury thinks it was by the North Koreans. And, um, you know, since this is happening on chain, um, you can see what's going on. Um, yeah, and and th the North Koreans used um, a mixer called Tornado Cash and um, to kind of disguise yeah. the transaction. And afterwards, um, Treasury has something called OFAC. I think it's like the Overseas um, Financial Assets um, uh, Compliance Division. And, and OFAC said that Tornado Cash is effectively illegal. And, and, you know, one of the funny things about regulations is like you often have these unintended consequences. And so when the Treasury Department yeah. says this thing's illegal, it, it, it's almost like the government putting their stamp of approval saying this works. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Don't use Monero, like criminals, drug dealers, North Koreans, don't use Monero, use Tornado Cash because it's so effective. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and, and so a lot of the hardcore crypto people are watching this. And they're saying like, you know, you're putting sanctions on code here. They're like this isn't even like a centralized operation. And then it brings up these really interesting questions like, you know, if I have Tornado Cash and I send it to your wallet, Alex, are you going to get sanctioned? Hmm. I mean, can they so, even enforce that? Well, you know, we're both U.S. citizens, so this is kind of the issue. That's that's true. Well, I mean, like, because they would actually have to go on chain and follow that. So 
I guess in theory it's available, but you know it's amount of resources and amount that's worth their time to to chase who. But I guess yeah, I guess at, if it's a bigger fish and they want to make a case of it, it's like you said, it's very possible. I guess. Um, but I, I also thought the whole point of like these, I don't know, are, are these like DeFi protocols or is this deeply in DeFi? Because then technically it shouldn't be able to be regulated. They couldn't stop it, right? As long, but the problem is, of course, it's a question of off ramp or not, right? So. Right, right. This is why it's so hard. This, this is why these are such interesting questions. And so right now, yeah. the, the, the media narrative has been around centralized exchanges. Um, but I think, I think uh, for the most part, uh, the big newspapers and the regulators haven't really got their head wrapped around um, how are you going to deal with decentralized exchanges um, and these um, mixers that are, are they're going to be very hard to regulate. So uh, the kind of regulation that, like, you know, we we should expect, um, the, 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 the approach seems to be like, okay, well, you know, this is what we did um, with bank, traditional banks and the stock market. Let's try to apply that to crypto. Correct. Um, but, yeah. you know, from the beginning, crypto is trying to be decentralized. So I think the what's going to happen is, like, you're going radic- to radicalize a lot of these um, early crypto adopters yeah. and, and uh, founders. If I read in between the lines, does that mean you think this pushes more for bifurcation then? That it's more likely that it becomes more of a shadow type operations of DeFi um, than that, the, that later on becomes a problem of, you know, you have a lot of secretly rich people who can't really offload their assets. Is that is that, is that what I'm hearing correctly? Uh, I, I think I probably agree with the first part. Um, you'll probably have a lot more secretly rich people. Um, I, I don't know any reason why it would be harder for them not to offload their assets. Um, yeah, I, I, this has been well, one of the things people are trying to figure out are like, you know, what are the actual use cases for crypto? And, cool. um, you know, in emerging markets right now, um, the, the, the reason you're seeing such heavy adoption um, in emerging markets are often these are countries that have... Um, capital controls and high inflation. So, you know, you're seeing crypto adoption in countries like um, Vietnam, Venezuela, Turkey, um, and Argentina that, um, you know, the, 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 the governments, um, you know, maybe had problems with their central bank and uh, citizens are worried about um, whether their local currency is going to depreciate very quickly. From your understanding of how they're actually using crypto in those markets, like say in Vietnam, like is it just everything's purely accepted and transacted in crypto? So from wallet to wallet, or do they? Are, is there some way that people will have the crypto store, but they would have to convert it to fiat and then use it, or like how how is it being done? Right, good question. So so this is where stable coins come in. Um, I, I think the dream is kind of like wallet to wallet transactions where I pay you salary or I pay for a cup of coffee, Yeah, correct. but, um, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Um, on the Bitcoin side, I think the Bitcoin people are trying to build things on top of the lightning network. Um, and, you know, cash app has gotten some traction, but, um, I, I think one major hurdle for the lightning network or Bitcoin is a lot of the Bitcoin people are, are hodlers. You know, they, they want to hold on to their, to their Bitcoin yeah. uh, and are not necessarily going to spend uh, Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. Um, so that, yeah. that's, that's one problem. Um, in terms of like the, the way practically it gets used, um, stable coins um, are, yeah, th- that's definitely like a, a, a very common use case here in Vietnam. 
And if you're running a centralized exchange and you're worried about regulation, you know, stable coins are a way to cover your ass. So, um, um, you know, if, if, if you end up getting regulated by, um, you know, your, your local ministry of finance or something, um, and they're, they're saying, you know, did you transact in cryptocurrency? You can say, no, I transacted in stable coins and my customer used the stable coin to then buy a crypto product. So, um, something that gets mm-hmm. lost is, um, a, a stable coin can be used, um, by crypto founders and entrepreneurs to cover their ass with regulators. And so that's a real pain point. Yeah, yeah true, true. And then like from, I guess, from political angle, do you have any insights on how that might be handled or it's just too, oh, too, oh, too, uh, too early to say? Well, so Alex, I mean, the, the, the really big trend here, I guess the, the, the story that we, we need to be thinking more about is, you know, SBF uh, was like the, the number two Democratic donor after George Soros. And so he's part of this yeah. first wave of crypto founders that's getting heavily involved in politics. And, um, yeah. you know, something that I anticipate is something like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, mm. set up as political, as political action committees. Yeah. Right. So, so SBF is I part mean, of that first wave. That's interesting. The interesting line of thought, because that ties also more in line with a real tangible use case for just general block, um, blockchain technology, right? Because if you can somehow have a better voting process tied on chain and tied to actual organizations where they could express publicly their intent for policy or change in a material world, right? These organizations that could, uh, you know, amass influence and power, but more in a decentralized way, seems like it could be a solution to a lot of the pain points people complain about in modern day politics, at least from the American perspective, right? Or at least from a democratic perspective, because we're at this weird point in time where it's just very messy with social media and, you know, uh, people trying to control elections and, you know, not knowing what's real news, right? So it, it does seem like if you follow that line of thought that, you know, this could be the first wave where they get killed, but it's also possible that some could find a real use case to build a DAO that's practically useful. Have you seen anyone trying to do this in your research or in your deals? Uh, no, I don't. I think SBF is the big one, um, but I mean he's doing it through no. the traditional way. I, 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 th- I think the way you're kind of um, thinking about it is kind of uh, a more positive, optimistic way. I'm thinking <laughs> of it as a, I'm thinking of it as a way to circumvent campaign finance laws. Oh, with that, that probably is you know, you know, in terms of product market fit for initially, you know, with super PACs that that get scrutinized too much, I think you're probably right. It's yeah, it's so probably super, more realistic on ramp to, to right. So to a, it, yeah. super, a super PAC DAO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also at the same time, then there's a similar line of thought for, you know, you're thinking of it in terms of the political way, but you also could think about in terms of um, this intermediating VC, right? You could have a VC DAO. Do you have any thoughts on VC DAOs and the feasibility of that? Um, I, I'm kind of on the fence here. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I, I work with a lot of venture capitalists um, and I've, I've met people who are members of DAOs. Um, I've considered joining them myself. Um, you know, during the hype, let's say a year ago, when the, the crypto markets were, um, uh, you know, were at much loftier valuations, it definitely seemed like yeah. um, momentum was on the DAO side. Now, yeah. you know, working with founders who are raising money, um, VC investors, traditional VC investors seem to have um, more sway right now. Um, one thing we're seeing is this trend towards equity plus warrants, um, where you invest traditional equity. And then, you know, you will have the right to switch over um, to buy the token. Um, 
you know, Chama from um, the, the, the VC hedge fund investor who's on the All In podcast, he's got a meme going on right now that's, that's really popular, basically criticizing Silicon Valley VC funds um, for dumping tokens on retail investors. And, and a lot of Correct. this is, is through these equity plus warrants. Like you'll invest equity in the company. Oh, I see what you mean. You, you'll help them create their own token and your exit path, your immediate liquidity is dumping it on retail. Um, so you'll see more scrutiny there. Um, uh, and the other thing I'll, I'll say is um, there used to be a, something called safe. I mean, there, there still are safes, simple agreement for future equity. equity. Now you're seeing the version of it is like, uh, I think like SAT, uh, sorry, uh, future agreement for a future, a simple agreement for future tokens. So a SAT. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, so in, you're telling me, wait, in your deal flow purview, like when you're working with founders and you're talking to VCs, are you telling me that token is still something in the conversation? Like I can't imagine a founder at this point in time trying to say, hey, I got a token, bro. Do you want to invest? It yeah, seems yeah, unlikely, yeah, yeah. right? Well, well, so 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 this is the path where, um, right? So 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 because of how bad the markets are, the path has swung back to traditional equity and traditional VC. But okay. I think my my right now, this is a somewhat contrarian take, but I think I'll be right in the long term. One of the innovations of crypto has been the ICO process, has been decentralized fundraising. So, yeah, correct. But, yeah. but um, you know, this is part of the the really weird, perverse part of reg regulation. Because the SEC was looking at ICOs and saying, like, look, these are clearly securities offerings. We're going to regulate this. These crypto founders have had to contort themselves and say, okay, let's not call it an ICO. Let's call it an IDO. <laughs> and then, let, well, actually, yeah, that's, yeah. let's call it a TGE. Let's call it a token generation event. And so you get so far away from the actual innovation is where you actually don't even, you forget there was an innovation. And so for all the, the deal offerings that I've seen where the token actually made sense, the, the hiccup was it makes so much sense. It looks like a securities offering. Yeah. Well, I mean, effectively it is, right? So, and I think the other problem is when you mix what you just said with the grifters, you lose the script, like you said. So. But I mean, if it, I mean, I kind of agree with you. It truly is a new paradigm that can probably change the way funds are raised, which is why I asked you about VC DAOs. But then, you know, if that's your take, if ICO really will work out in the long run, what do you think is a potential mechanism that allows it to remove the grift? Does it need to be regulated? If so, how will it be regulated? Or what is it a technological solution? Or how do you think this is solved? Um, okay, so so two things. Um, I think there's there's always going to be kind of bad behavior in these markets, um, and and we see this in very regulated stock markets as well. Um, you know, just because you're going through investment bankers, corporate lawyers, and uh, a big four audit firm, doesn't mean you're not you know committing fraud. And yeah. I think if you went through um, U.S. stock offerings, you could there, there's probably some fraudulent activity there. That's you know that's why the short selling industry uh, even exists. Um, so that's the first point. Um, the, the second point is um, I, I would give some of these founders the benefit of the doubt. Um, some things that look like fraud um, could just be startups that failed, right? So um, yeah, that's correct. raises like, you know, two to three million on an ICO, IDO, TGE event, and um, the startup doesn't work out and the token goes down to zero, but the founder yeah. actually and, you know, you and I have done, um, you know, VC-backed startups before that weren't successful. And, you know, we weren't trying to commit fraud. We, we were using the money and yes. like build a real business. Yes, actually doing it. Right. But the outcome is, for the investors, the outcome is the same. 
Well, I mean, yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack there where, you know, VCs are also participating in the fraud and they are actual fraudsters, but there are actual good intentions. So it's very great to kind of weed out what is what, right? So but if, if we're looking, like, so if I'm hearing it correctly, you think they're, you know, tokens and ICOs do hold promise. What's the correct way to I, I, look and, or approach? Actually, let me emphasize that. I would say this is the major innovation in crypto. And when people say, what are the use cases for crypto? Like, you know, uh, yeah, I would say like decentralized fundraising has been a major advancement. And, and if you're a founder that's far away from Silicon Valley, that does not live in a country that has like the kind of legal system, like does not have Delaware chancellor yeah. courts, this was your way yeah. to raise money. And so we've seen this firsthand in Vietnam. And so I would say yeah. ICOs were a major innovation that helped founders here who could not access liquidity. Actually, true. Uh, there's, there's no way A16Z would have popped out of nowhere if, if, if it wasn't for this technology, right? And, and actually, it brought real tangible value, specifically in the case of Axie Infinity, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a very good point. And so if we take that line of thought and extend it further into 2023, what would be the right way to think about approaching doing a token sale, minting a token, and trying to pitch it? to have tangible value. So I, I mentioned earlier, the, the token offerings that seem to have the most value um, were also the ones most likely to come across like um, regulatory issues because like these are clearly securities offerings. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I guess I would, I would put the crypto founders I meet into two camps. They're, they're the ones that like are, are ready to embrace regulation and they're the ones that are kind of more cowboys. Um, that mm. got into crypto because they felt really passionate about decentralization and were anti-centralized authorities. Um, yeah. From what I've seen, the ones that do well, the ones that actually get significant traction and become global phenomenons, yeah. um, uh, that they'll, um, yeah, they 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 definitely move first and then ask for permission later. So the more of the wild west kind of guys are the ones who are the ones who bring real tangible value. The ones who don't really think about the regulation piece too much. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I would warn people who are trying to curry favor with the regulators is that the regulators are, um, by the nature of their job, they're going to be behind the curve. You know, they themselves are not at the cutting edge. And so if you're coming up to them and asking them really hard, uh, uh, bleeding edge case problems, you know, you're like, hey, yeah, like, yeah. hey, I've got this really exotic token. Um, and, and, and let me give you a bunch of analogies to the stock markets. You kind of have an idea of what I'm trying to do. And, and you know, this is yeah. a problem um, in a country like Vietnam, too, where the stock market is not that mature. Um, you know, the stock market regulators themselves are trying to figure out um, um, regulations about leverage and um, stock yeah. prices dropping. Um, if you come to them and you give them even harder questions about crypto, the answer for the most part is going to be, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And if you don't do anything in that, in that amount of time, it will kill you. They're going to, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, so if you actually have a good idea to build technology on a decentralized platform, um, if you're waiting to get permission from a regulator, that's mm. probably not going to work. That's a very interesting um, thought because if you really think about how modern financial systems were developed, it's literally the same thing. I mean, you start with the bank. In a very traditional sense, those guys were really the frontier guys, you know, risk capital back in, in as far as banks go, right? And then from there, you have the evolution of the modern financial system. You go through tons of grifters. You go through tons of, I mean, we're talking like 
I, I don't know, I'm sure 16, 1700s, you have the same problem, right? So, and you have to kind of innovate in the markets first. And then it's always that the trend is that regulation does catch up eventually, right? But it's more like you really can't sit in a round for innovation to happen. So that is something to think about because I was asking you earlier, what is your line of thought? If you're in this centralized exchange space or if you're in a wallet space, what should you do? And it seems like to me, like your take would be is that if, you, if you're waiting to work with regulators, you're just not going to add any value and you're not going to move anywhere forward. And that's also probably something for VCs to think about. I mean, so I guess if you're looking at deal, make, deal making and you're looking at helping uh, VCs deploy their capital, you probably want to look at the people who are kind of pushing the line and the boundaries, right? To taking on more risk because otherwise nothing will happen. Is this the right way to think about it? Yeah. Yeah. So then it, in, in, I guess you've still been looking at deals all throughout 2022. What you know, besides, I guess, ICOs, and I think you're quite, you're very still bullish on game web three, gaming and web three, I'm assuming. Uh, what else have you been seeing that's probably most promising throughout 2022? And, you know, despite this kind of turmoil, what, what do you think holds the most fundamental promise going into 2023? Well, I think the last time we talked, um, the, the, there haven't been that many major advancements in GameFi, uh, blockchain NFT okay. games yet. Um, and I yeah. think, I, I, I still believe in the promise. I still believe that like, you know, you can have these virtual economies that are fun and people can earn, um, the, the play to earn model could work. Um, the way yeah. it's set up right now, um, um, it, it looks like it leads to hyperinflation and people, um, lose interest and, and drop the token relatively quickly. Um, Axie yeah. Infinity is still up and running. They're still kicking. They're still doing really well. Um, the, a lot of the clones that's, that sprung up to copy them. Um, did not last that long. And, mm. uh, you know, one reason would be, um, I, yeah, I think they actually ended up copying the game too closely and ended up running yeah. into the same problems. So there have been other games that actually had these, like, really um, high tokens spikes in their utility token. And so they, yeah. they ran into the exact same uh, hyperinflation issues. And for whatever reason, there just hasn't been enough um, um, innovation or experimentation there. Uh, and I, I think, like, you know, my advice to all the Game 5 founders is, the way you set up the token design for your game should be different from the way Axie did it. Like, you know, don't don't um, wed yourself to that model because uh, we already have enough evidence that that, that doesn't work. Uh, the the other trend seems to be more towards gaming infrastructure. So, like, um, you know, I'm building um, Unity or Unreal for for GameFi. That seems to be, mm. um, you know, if I were a VC investor, I could see why those buzzwords would be like kind of an attractive combination. Um, you know, I'm still waiting to see you know, how that pans out. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky. What is your take when you also look at these kind of GameFi deals? Like, I, I think you're the one who's actually turned me on to white papers and taking them seriously and studying them seriously. I was talking to some other VC crypto investors where they look at just purely the gaming aspect. You know, is it addictive? Is it a good game? And then you figure it out later. So do you, what, what, is, what is your approach here? Do you think both approaches are valid or would you rather have some real token mechanics written down on paper and you to evaluate. Because like every person I came across in GameFi, when they asked to invest, it's, they don't have a white paper. They just have some type of game launch. And then, you know, then you have problems, like you said, you would need the infrastructure tools that they can't really build. So the game's like not that great. So what is your general approach? Or you, do you think one is more right than the other? Yeah, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. Um, I met uh, one really uh, smart um uh, founder uh, and Web3 investor. And his framework is he's looking for two things. Um, he's looking for an awesome tech team and a great designer. And that, mm. those are two very simple requirements, but 
90% of the projects that I would come across would fail one or both of those. Um, so that's one framework you could use. Um, the reason I'm so into the white papers or talking about the tokenomics is just to get, get a sense of how the founders are thinking. And I see. Have, okay. Yeah, like, you know, do, do they have a thoughtful approach to this? Because yeah. really, I, I've been in so many of these meetings and the most common um, refrain is they'll criticize Axie They'll say that the game isn't that fun um, and that theirs is going to be better, but they end up copying the game 95% of the way. And so, um, and, and, and that, I think that ends up being really disrespectful um, to the kind of, to, to, to the Axie founders and what they've accomplished. Um, I think the guys at Axie are, are way ahead of their clones. And the last thing I'll add too, I think the model has network effects. So, you know... Oh. Uh, so one question I ask these these up and coming GameFi founders is, um, you know, um, they're usually dependent on guilds, and so they'll have to go to a guild and at, you know try to get yeah. that way. But uh, th there's way more GameFi games than guilds, and the guilds can typically only handle three or four games. You know, they can't handle twenty five. Mm, correct. Right, and and most of them will default to where the action is. They'll they'll default to where uh, the game is well known. Yeah, and the game has a, has a liquid market. And Axie is pretty much the only one that can offer you that. So, so Axie has been sticky oh, in I see that. I what way. you mean by, by network effect. Um, what, so how, how would you think about guilds then? Is it kind of just like a market maker until you get scale? Or they just they also help provide the liquidity for the other players who want to just also casually use it? Or how, how do you think about guilds? Um, I, I mean, the way I think about guilds is... Um, is an onboarding mechanism for players who couldn't afford to buy the NFT assets initially. Um, I mean, th I think that was kind of their main function. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're kind of a cross between esports teams. Um, and, yeah, well, yeah, what else is it? something else that, I mean, the, the, the model like came about because of Axie. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, they're limited by human resources as well. Um, you know, they can only recruit X number of players and they can only dedicate themselves to Y number of games. Um, and so GameFi founders need to be aware of that. So maybe uh, two lines of thought here. First one is, uh, what, what do you, I mean, I guess, do you think that Axie is successful because it has the first mover advantage or inherently what, what is in the product or, you know, when you do game comparison, what's making it more sticky than others other than the network effect? Oh, why are they yeah. so successful? Uh, um, the yeah, the, the team knows what they're doing. The team has more vision. Uh, look, if you're just trying to copy Axie, you by definition don't have vision. Um, the Axie yeah. guys um, had a vision of what they were doing. Um, maybe they didn't get yeah. every single detail right, and maybe they have like a hyperinflation economy, but they were the ones that like were able to get Filipino villagers using a utility token, uh, which is yeah. an amazing accomplishment. And I think. Uh, is something that like development finance organizations like the World Bank should like really praise them for because this is something you yeah. know any other like you know a U.S. aid project that like was able to bring you know jobs to Filipino villagers uh, would be getting praised by the Clinton and the Gates Foundation. And to me, that's just kind of head scratching because for the longest time in narrative of fintech was it still is is the unbanked population. So I'm just kind right. of wondering why no one in DeFi or these, you know, these crypto spaces just builds a, like some type of protocol for a bank 
but they just go directly to the unbanked population. You know, you could go to the the countryside in Indonesia, countryside in Vietnam, Philippines, right? All there's like it's just if you have the technology, you could just simply go there and acquire because there's immediate actual value for these people, right? So, what do you think? Have you seen anything like this, or why do you think it's not happened more more diffuse? Like actually, well, I mean, I, I guess the the knock on GameFi is that it's yield farming with an extra step. Um, yeah. yeah. So so you you get these people in the villages playing the game. Um, and and this ends up being their job, um, and they're able to get currency that way. Um, look, I I think the 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 reason people are against this, but but you know want to support other kind of development finance projects is because those um, development finance projects are seen as being serious, whereas games are seen as frivolous. Whereas like mm. you know my my take is one of the reasons the gaming industry is so important is exactly because um, older respectable people think it's frivolous. Hmm. Very contrarian. So yeah. what, is that part of the reason why you also think that innovation in the GameFi space has been slow? Is it because of this kind of uh No, 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 no. Dynamic? So, 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 so uh, I, I don't think it's been that slow. I mean, like, you know, um, Axie's success is still like, you know, uh, relatively uh, ahead, yeah. recent. It, it's been relatively recent. Uh, it, it, it Look, these are like, when I'm criticizing the token design or hyperinflation here, we're talking about like, you know, um, macroeconomy issues. And, um, you know, I just saw something recently about how most Americans um, think that if you cut interest rates, that, it, you know, it'll alleviate inflation, you know, um, yeah. and, and maybe you could find some weird edge cases where that's true. But generally, that's probably not going to happen. Um, people's understanding of economics is uh, especially macro, which can be like kind of and, and people will say this, too. Right. It's the dismal science. Um, you know, we're only looking at historical record. Um, you can't run this in experiments. Um, the reason I like GameFi so much is that I think we can apply real world lessons for macroeconomics to video games. Yeah. Eventually, we'll do it the other way around. Well, the, the lessons mm. that we learn video games will be applied to real central bankers. That's so, that's very counterintuitive, for, at least for a lot of people in our generation, because <laughs> We grew up on games as a pure way of entertainment. We were always told it was a waste of time, where in reality that that paradigm could shift. Where that's that is the way you know you've created economic value and systems, uh, and I guess new ways for people to live, right? So that that would be very interesting if that does manifest. Um, I guess at least for the last thing I would like to cover, and maybe we could talk about whatever anything else you have in your mind. But um, in terms of you know infrastructure that's missing in the space versus the application layer, it, it seems that you know. Looking at games is very much in the application layer. Do, do you see that we still need a lot more infrastructure work before we could push forward meaningful, meaningfully with applications? Or do you think there's enough backbone already where we could have really good innovation and good applications on top of the blockchain, crypto, GameFi you know, space? Right, right. Uh, I guess defining infrastructure here is hard. But in general, um, I, I People, for the most part, struggle to onboard onto crypto. Um, the interfaces are hard to use. People are afraid of cold wallets. Um, a lot of the the website UI UX looks like websites from you know the '90s when you and I were teenagers. Um, yeah, it, it's actually one of the reasons I like find um, the industry really charming. Um, <laughs> and, and it gives you a, yeah, yeah, because it, it kind of reminds me of like you know what it was like to get online. Um, Oh, that's for the true. first time, it's um, a great parallel. Yeah, and 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 I think it'll take time, and things will get easier. Um, 
and and all those things, you know, we'll we'll look back retrospectively as infrastructure. Like, okay, um, you know, mm. the the centralized exchanges were 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 uh, either um, not regulated very well, um, had corrupt owners, um, or were easily hacked. Um, and 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 we should expect to see more movement towards decentralized exchanges and uh, cold wallets. But um, right now, um, you know, there's a legitimate perception that those products are hard to use. What and, and yeah, I guess in actuality, I mean, I'm sure you've had experience with this. Reality is like at least for my interaction with the wallet that I use, it's really not any more different than a Web two experience, at least for me. And I guess it depends on which product you use and you know how good the robust systems are, right? So, but uh, but it's like you said, it's probably a matter of time only. Um, you know, I I had a um, a good friend say recently that the the cult wallets are basically just second factor um, authentication devices, TFA, two FA devices. And when you think of it that way, like, yeah, yeah like there is a, a pain point, but you know, they work and they, they, they are familiar um, to, to people who work in tech. Yeah, I, I mean, it's again, that's talking about the intersect of, you know, TradFi and, and DeFi, you know, and then like if you really want to move this space, you will have to be accountable. Right. So but I think over time that will probably get solved in better ways. It just needs more adoption. Um, is, there, is there anything else that we've missed that you've been looking at, either in general crypto space in Vietnam specifically, or I don't know, going to the end of the year into the new year? Um, I think there's, uh, I, you know, just just kind of the SPF story. Um, I, I think there's going to be more about Serum um, coming out, and yeah, I mean, I'll be watching the regulatory side and Contagion. Um, the 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 I guess the big story. I mean, we'll know if it's going to have serious effects if if the price of the um, of the two main market cap um, tokens like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, drops severely. But right now, the the drops seem like fairly modest. Like it does not yeah, seem like yeah. the world is falling is not falling apart. Um, and, and you know, this is the year where everyone. I think this is probably the third or fourth time I've heard. Um, this referred to as crypto's Lehman moment, you know, so three AC going <laughs> down, Celsius going down, um, every, well, for those people. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think for a lot of us that are our age, um, the global financial crisis was a, was a, a really big deal. And, you know, it, when Lehman went over, went under, I think the, the, the bankruptcy proceedings were 600 billion and, you know, yeah. this led to major government in, intervention. Um, you know, that we're still dealing with now. Um, the ethos of crypto is to push back. And the numbers yeah. that we're dealing with here, you know, are, are still relatively modest. Um, you know, it, it's going to be like uh, an $8 billion hole for FTX. Um, but so far, you know, it's, it's still a, a largely unregulated industry. And because it's unregulated, I, I, I suspect we'll see innovation coming through. Um, so yeah. I think the promise of crypto is still there. And and so when I'm seeing this, I'm seeing people panic and I'm saying, and, and people are asking, you know, Don, why are you still in crypto? Um, <laughs> but my response is, this is exactly why I'm in the crypto. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, here because yeah. the volatility is a feature. It's not a bug. And Correct. the price is dropping rapidly. You know, you see this in the public markets as well. Um, Klarna, um, the... Um, Klarna, the lending company, and Amazon, you know, like those stocks have dropped a lot this year. Um, but that, yeah. you know, on its face does not mean that these are like necessarily bad assets. This is just the nature of market. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, long term, I think that's you know, one of the criticisms is that Bitcoin and a lot of the crypto major coins, Ethereum, that they are store of value and assets, but the, the criticism that you know they fluctuate the markets. But I think that's just because we're so early in it. But if you look at overall, you know, it hasn't gone to zero and it's still holding, like you said. So I, I think that's further proof point that it is there to stay as an asset class. Over time, if you can get the technology right, you know, you do more transactions, more nodes, uh, as it gets widely, truly, truly widely decentralized, I think that value has, is more steady over time. It's just like you said, it's a feature where it's hyper volatile now because you're still in the early adoption phase. Over time with maturity, you know, and I think we've already seen the threshold. I mean, of course, unless it drops further, then, then we're mistaken probably. But, you know, if, if it stays around, you know, at these prices or materially, there's still a lot. And we're talking like, uh, people were telling me it's like right now, the total value in crypto is maybe one trillion. But before that, we're only in the billions, right? So I, I think if we stay around here, it's, it's actually a very positive sign, if anything. And then, like you said, it's more for the bull case for the real, you know, native guys, the DeFi guys, you know, so, but uh, that, that's to be determined, I guess. So, yeah, I, I'm actually not sure what happens to the volatility uh, down the road as these markets get bigger. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating volatility um, definitely for the, the short to medium term. Yeah, correct. Correct. But I guess that still means, you know, you'll still be doing crypto deals. You're not tuned on to any other space. Um so I guess that's that's also a good thing too. Do you, is there anything else you want to cover, or do you want to wrap up here? Uh, I think that's it. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, this is this is fun. I'm I'm definitely following the news, and uh, thanks for having me back on. Yep. Uh, thank you for all your insights, and uh, definitely we'll look forward to having you back in the future if anything changes. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Al. Okay. Bye.